Listening to episode 36 of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. Steve Martin's Bowfinger from 1999 has a running gag in it about how a movie needs a catchphrase in order to be a hit. As the title character, a movie producer, Steve Martin insists that their picture within a picture needs a catchphrase in order to make it as a blockbuster. All popcorn movies were expected to have one, they were quotable, and they proved the hero's mettle in defeating the odds. Steve Martin hopes to follow in the tradition of major box office from Arnold's I'll Be Back or Hasta La Vista Baby or Bruce Willis's Yippie Kaye Motherfucker. Eddie Murphy stars in Bowfinger's Picture Within a Picture called Chubby Rain. He delivers the line, gotcha suckers, when he saves the day. Although catchphrases with legs were not born of the 1980s or 1990s, they've been around for ages. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night from Betty Davis as she climbs the stairs in a fabulous cocktail dress with mink pockets in All About Eve. Or Bogart on the tarmac. Here's looking at you, kid, and Casablanca. I would like to add to the list an absolute gem from Above Suspicion from 1943. Fred McMurray and Conrad Veidt rescued Joan Crawford from the Gestapo. Once they cross over into the Freedom in Italy, they send the stolen Nazi sedan off the side of the Tyrolean Alps to crash and burn. Fred then utters the closing line, Well, how about some spaghetti? Done and dusted. As catchphrases go, it's cheeky and borrows from modesty born of truly heroic acts. His line says, Oh, defeating Nazis is just something we do before dinner. It's brilliant. It's understated, and it bookends their honeymoon knee-deep in espionage. Above suspicion keeps a sense of humor throughout when so many other spy capers are po-faced or dour. Based on a novel by Helen McInnes, the script by Keith Winter, Melville Baker, and Patricia Coleman has so many zingers that fly past at a fast clip. The Nazis, led by Basil Rathbone, have no funny bone to speak of, and they suffer from so much arrogance and bloated ego that they miss the quicker wits who set out to foil their evil plot. Newlyweds, Joan Crawford's Francis and Fred McMurray's Richard Miles, receive a mission on their wedding night to help stop a Nazi secret weapon that utilizes magnetic underwater mines to attract and destroy battleships. Fred McMurray replies that he often thought the rumors of the secret weapons were just Nazi ballyhoo. Over drinks, the British contact tells Fred to watch what he says to the wife, since women tend to overplay their hand. The men downplay the mission to Joan once she enters with a cloak thrown over her smoking hot boudoir look. They're just running an errand. They'll meet a man they don't know in Paris who will tell them where to find a man they don't know in southern Germany. The wheels start turning in Joan's head so that she's five steps ahead of the men. Joan accepts with glee, oh, Richard, we're spies. They were chosen by the British contact because they will seem like typical American tourists and therefore be above suspicion. Joan runs through a standard film plot that ends with Boris Karloff falling out of a closet with an apple in his mouth. 
Fred excuses her to the button-down Oxford man. Her conception of foreign affairs stems directly from Hollywood, he says. That may be the case, but the men underestimate the power of deduction that Joan has. Trained on a steady diet of Hollywood whodunits and spy pictures, Joan's character Frances Miles has developed the capacity for acute observation. For example, when they walk into their hotel room at one point, she instantly perceives that the maid has been spying on them. Her two perfume bottles on the dressing table have been moved. She knows exactly where she left them in front of the mirror. This seems like Joan in real life, a woman who likes order and has a designated spot for everything. It's Joan's character that figures out how to decode the dots on the map. She uses her powers of deduction to identify the hidden clef on the page. She connects the dots to the musical score for My Love is Like a Red Red Rose and sings it out. Her husband gloats a little bit, telling her that she should go to the movies more often. He's catching on. Above Suspicion utilizes style as an essential plot point in espionage, like a superior woman's picture should. Think about Vivian Lee reading dress embroidery that contains a map of enemy troop movements in Dark Journey. Or that exquisite moment when Marlena Dietrich stands in front of a firing squad in Dishonored. She carefully rolls up her net veil, pulls a tube of lipstick from her garter, and freshens her lipstick just before the shots are fired. Or everything that Garbo wears in Matahari. Spy pictures set the occasion for some outstanding fashion statements. Now, Adrian left MGM the year before Above Suspicion was made, so he's not responsible for dressing Joan as she was accustomed. Instead, Irene and her new assistant, Sheila O'Brien, created the lean suits and styles for Joan's spy caper. Her suits are tailored with broad shoulders, as usual. It suits her physique, but it also creates a silhouette that makes Joan look fortified and formidable. After the opening send-off for the newlyweds, Francis and Richard, they motor to a little inn for their wedding night. Joan wears a darling penoir set in a crop-top design with a fine net underneath rather than actual bare skin. The wedding night ensemble boasts the discipline of Joan Crawford's diet and exercise regimen. She may be pushing 40, but she could easily pass for 28. In the opening scene, Joan's character had confessed that ever since she fell off a horse when she was a little girl, she has this habit of slipping her shoe off when she's nervous. Her little trick calls attention to her signature open-toe heels, the ones that years before caused Tallulah Bankhead to refer to Joan as the girl in the fuck-me-pumps. But perhaps the best fashion statement in Above Suspicion is the hat Joan wears so that the German contact will know them. A hat with a large red rose authenticates their spy credentials. Joan's rose hat makes a political statement on two levels. It marks out her anti-fascist bona fides for those in the resistance movement. And then, on another level, for the regular innkeeper, it shows that a woman who wears the same hat every day for a week is as pinched as the locals. They interpret Joan's hat as a sign of an international economic slump. The well-worn hat has an equalizing effect for Joan's character so that she's just not another spoiled American traipsing around Europe. 
In the third act, they try to secure safe passage for Reginald Owen, who plays the scientist who can defeat the underwater mine technology. They should have brought in Hedy Lamarr. Anyway, and then Conrad Veidt equips them with papers and disguises so they might depart the Third Reich. But then the Nazis abduct Joan. She disappears for far too long. When we see her again, she's tied to a chair. We know Joan has been tortured by the Nazis because her clothes are must, and she has three distinct smudges of dirt on her face. Oh, the indignity. The only way Joan Crawford would appear in public with a dirty face would have to be the result of grievous bodily harm. This picture contains a fair amount of body humor, which somehow sailed over the production code's office's head. First, there's Fred McMurray's sex face when he contemplates his wedding night connubial bliss with Frances. She says, think of all the fun and games you'll deprive them of, referring to the boisterous undergraduates in Oxford. Fred's eyes glaze over as he purrs, yeah, think of it. When they check in at the inn on their wedding night, the lady at the front desk makes a pained expression when she reminds them to pull the drapes. The lovers and the viewers assume it's out of decency. She corrects them, saying it's a blackout provision. Later on the same night, Fred McMurray suggests she not mention their mission. Joan makes a joke about feigning sexual naivete. Richard says, darling, the less you know or appear to know, the better. Francis replies, that's what my mother told me the night I came out in Boston. But you know, the filthiest moment in the picture belongs to Conrad Veidt because that was his trademark, the sexy devil. Lucifer in a tuxedo. When Richard and Francis are trying to meet their contact, they wander the streets unsure of what to do when they're in southern Germany. On a narrow street, Joan takes a step back to avoid a Nazi patrol and inadvertently steps on Conrad Veidt, the contact they seek. The camera zooms in for a close-up of Joan's heel grinding into Connie's foot. When it cuts to his reaction shot, he gives viewers his O face. He savors the pain it causes. Connie liked it rough. There's no ambiguity about the Nazis in this picture. They are wholly outside the light of democracy. In this picture, even the men have sass mouths to verbally slay the jackboots. A Gestapo guy says, Heil Hitler. Francis says, good day. The Gestapo guy says, I gave you our German greeting, American. And Richard responds, we gave you ours, dope. Dope is such a cutting remark, it undercuts the uniformed machismo. This picture has an unwarranted bad reputation. Joan's biographers, such as Lawrence Quirk, Sean Considine, and Bob Thomas, among others, write this one off as the nadir period of Joan Crawford's career, the dregs of MGM's story department. Most recently, Ryan Murphy's miniseries Feud completed a hit job on the production. The miniseries Feud replicates the set from a scene in the Alps. Jessica Lang, as Joan Crawford, halts production mid-scene to complain about the plausibility of the storyline. This series made it look as if she clearly hated the project and felt it beneath her. It seems likely that many people who are just discovering Joan Crawford's work as a result of Feud might take a pass on seeing the picture. But you should seek this one out. The Russians have it at OK.RU.
Although it was the last picture that Joan Crawford made in MGM after 18 years as Queen of the Lot, well, until she returned in 1953 for Torch Song, it's one of her best turns at comedy mixed with drama. She looks like she's having fun. She looks great, in fact. She takes top billing as she should. This is a rock-solid spy caper. What better way to start a new year than with Joan Crawford thwarting Nazis? She has a fantastic rapport with Fred McMurray. And this is Conrad Veidt's last picture before he died of a heart attack one day on the links. Thank God he wasn't playing a Nazi in this one. I'm glad he was able to seal his imprint in celluloid, playing a member of the anti-fascist resistance. For a man who received death threats from Hitler, who left Germany in protest and identified as Jewish on his passport to align himself with his wife and the oppressed population in Germany, it would have been tragic to end his career in an SS uniform. Joan Crawford was never the best judge of her own work. In her memoir, A Portrait of Joan, and later in her interviews with Roy Newquist, she internalized the reactions of fans and film critics rather than rely on her own appraisal. Joan slated Rain from 1932 because fans didn't care for the garish makeup she wore to play Sadie Thompson, Somerset Maugham's sex worker who outfoxes a missionary. It's really one of her best performances. How many times do we get to see one of God's bullies floating face down in a lagoon? Not nearly enough. Later, Joan said she believed that if there were, was a hell, she'd be damned to watch Reunion in France from 1943 on a loop. But there are many things to recommend the film. Joan plays a socialite who develops into a resistance fighter in the Second World War. She fought against the Nazi war machine before she made Above Suspicion. Although she looks great in Reunion in France, I only wish they had cut out the romantic subplot. John Wayne never knew how to play next to a woman who was not summoning erotic overtones. Joan was business-minded about the picture. The same thing with Claudette Colbert in Without Reservations. John Wayne was always looked like he was ready to ask for Colbert's coat rather than ask her to bed. Joan also didn't find any merit in Flamingo Road, which ranks among her best from the 1940s. In A Portrait of Joan, she placed her films at the end of her tenure in MGM in context to the war era. She recalled, Compared to reality, such pictures as Reunion in France and Above Suspicion were undiluted hokum, as undigestible as the wax hot dogs served up on a meatless Tuesday in a pail of real sauerkraut for a scene in the last-named picture. Ouch. Joan slated it during an interview with Roy Newquist. When he asked about it, she replied, If a script was bad, I was worse. But she does praise it a little bit in an interview with Charlotte Chandler. She quotes Joan in Not the Girl Next Door. Joan believed above suspicion was Hitchcockian and should have been directed by him. She said that she would have worked for free, well, almost free, to have been directed by Hitchcock. For my money, there's no such thing as a bad Joan Crawford picture. She always gives the viewer something to make it worthwhile, a line delivery, a withering glance, an outstanding ensemble, her posture even. 
Even in a Turkey, such as Ice Follies of 1939, there is an absolute stunning makeover sequence where she gets the full MGM treatment. She appears made over as Hedy Lamarr and Jeanette MacDonald, her competition on the lot, in one of the best glamour piss takes on celluloid. If pressed, I'd say my least favorite is Today We Live because it's not a Joan Crawford picture. She suffers in the role of tacked-on love interest imposed by Howard Hawks. Her character isn't really developed. Joan Crawford should never be crawling on her belly to capture cockroaches for sport. It pains me just to watch that scene. For a woman who prided herself on a spotless record of cleanliness and order, cockroach racing is a bridge too far. As Donald Spotto records in his biography, Possess, the Life of Joan Crawford, the power dynamics shifted during Joan's final years in MGM. Former queens of the MGM lot, Norma Shearer and Greta Garbo, had both retired from the screen in 1942. Their exit should have provided Joan with first pick of the juicy scripts. But MGM began cultivating a new roster of stars. New faces such as Lana Turner, Hedy Lamarr, Judy Garland, and Greer Garson received the plum assignments instead. Joan had lobbied Louis B. Mayer for Random Harvest and Madame Curie, both of which had gone to Greer Garson. Metro's front office had planned to ride out Joan's contract and save the prestige pictures for new faces. Joan realized that she wasn't really Louis B. Mayer's favorite daughter after all. After Above Suspicion, her next picture in 1943 was supposed to be Cry Havoc. Joan quipped that it should have been called The Women Go to War. She told Mayer that her fans didn't want to see her in another war picture and that she didn't look good in a uniform. I adore Cry Havoc, which was eventually cast with Margaret Sullivan, Anne Sheridan, and Joan Blondell. It's a total gem, by the way. She probably regarded an ensemble cast as an impediment to her star quality. The next picture they offered was The Heavenly Body, next to William Powell. Joan described the thankless role that that asked her to stand around and do nothing. She told the front office to give it to Hedy Lamarr. Joan requested a contract release. Mayer balked. When they met in June 1943, Joan remained firm on her decision to leave MGM. Mayer used his oldest trick in the book. He cried. He always squirted crocodile tears to manipulate his contract players. Myrna Loy depicts scenes with a tearful Mayer in her cracking memoir, Being and Becoming. Joan remained steadfast. She scrubbed her studio bungalow from top to bottom, packed up her things, and then left by the back gate. After 18 years as a star, she left without a farewell or even a bouquet from the studio brass. But Joan always had a talent for looking ahead and devoting her attention to moving on. Her new agent, Lou Wasserman, who also happened to represent Betty Davis, believed in her ability to deliver a hit. He entertained offers from Columbia and other studios. Joan declined Columbia's offer on the basis of Harry Cohn's reputation for demanding sex from his contract players. Two days after she left MGM, she started a new contract in Warner Brothers. Lou Wasserman secured a deal for three pictures at half a million dollars. 
It was less than she had made with MGM, but she received a degree of creative control that meant more to her than money. Joan now had script approval. She also had the power to choose a director and cast her leading man. She was all set. She played a patient waiting game for the right property to return to the screen. But she wasn't idle. Joan volunteered with a charity she established to provide daycare for women who worked for the war effort. She had a model victory garden that she opened once a week for public tours. Joan exercised, she read, she stayed social, and she kept looking for that script. When Jack Warner grumbled about how long she took to find her first project, Joan abruptly told him to take her off the payroll. She declined a salary until the right project came along. Joan quotes him in her memoir, Nobody's ever asked to be taken off salary. She must want something, Warner said. Nothing gets a Hollywood mogul's attention like turning down a paycheck. Joan did want something. She wanted a hit. Joan had to wait nearly two years until she found the right project, which is a pretty big risk for a woman facing 40. She must have been terrified. But Joan's determination to hold out for a good script paid off. On December 7, 1944, she started shooting Mildred Pierce. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 37 when I talk about Barbara Stanwyck's last pre-code picture, Gambling Lady from 1934. Thanks very much.